0: It's Friday, 9th of December, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and coming up, we'll be hearing about Lula's return to the Brazilian presidency and whether he'll be able to tackle rampant deforestation in the Amazon. But for now, I'm joined again by Neil Shearing, our group Chief Economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. Can we start by looking ahead to next week? Because it's CPI week in the US, and then we have this last flurry of central bank decisions. US on Wednesday, the Fed, Bank of England, and Eurozone on Thursday and it looks as though we're going to be seeing some kind of downshifting. We're expecting 50 basis point hikes from each of those banks down from the recent 75 point moves. The Bank of Canada did 50 basis points at its meeting on Wednesday. But Stephen Brown, who leads that coverage, he's saying this could be the end of the bank's tightening cycle. Do you think that's how the outcomes are? of of the coming week's meetings will be taken. Do you think that, in other words, that it'll mark a, a definite shift in the narrative around this tightening cycle? Well, I think the Bank of
1: Canada are probably close to the end of the tightening cycle than other central banks in the advanced world. But I do think that in the case of the Fed, for example, I think we we might be getting close to the end of the tightening cycle too, for others it may not be the end but it might be the beginning of the the end i think one thing that's true across most central banks perhaps with the exception of the ecb is that there's now a bit less focus on the pace of tightening whether it should be 175 or 50 and a bit more focus on just how far will central banks need to to raise interest rates to squeeze inflation out of the system the ecb's Still a bit more focused on the pace of tightening, but I suspect that by the time we get into to next year, early next year, the debate there will shift too. So I think that the debate is shifting away from scrambling to get back ahead of the curve on inflation. And do we hike by 100 or 75 or should it be 50? And uh, and the pace of tightening are much more towards the terminal rate. In other words, how far do interest rates ultimately need to to be raised?
0: It's striking. I'm mean, reading through these the, the, these previews of these central bank meetings. Our, our central bank watches, which go out a week before the meeting, and as you say, there is a, a tonal difference in discussing the Fed and the Bank of England versus what we expect the ECB outcome to be. Andrew Kenningham talking about the the possibility, at least, of a 75 basis point move next week, even though our forecast is for 50. Why is there this apparent divergence? Do you think between the U.S., the U.K., and and Europe? Yes, that's right. We forecast 50
1: basis point increase by the ECB in the coming week. We wouldn't be surprised to see a 75 basis point increase and our forecast for the terminal rates a bit higher than what is currently priced into markets too. Um, I think one of the features of this whole inflation cycle and the monetary policy tightening cycle has been that the US has tended to lead the UK, which has tended to lead... Europe or, or the Eurozone. So inflation picked up first and, and and accelerated more quickly in the US initially. And then it took a while to filter through in, in Europe. And the same is true of the monetary policy tightening cycle. The Fed was first off the mark and has, and, and, and has raised rates more aggressively in this cycle so far. So I think there's a sense in which the ECB is a bit has a bit further to go. It's it's been a bit further behind in this story just because inflation has been a bit slower to pick up in the eurozone. And Mm -hmm. so they're still playing a bit of catch up there. So I think that accounts for the fact that there's still a debate about should it be 75, should it be 50, rather than just how far do we need to raise rates. That's been less of the focus so far. I think everywhere, though, central banks are grappling with this idea that we've discussed in the past on this podcast, which is... Because the old models of forecasting inflation have been shown to kind of fall short in this cycle, the old frameworks for thinking about inflation are perhaps a bit deficient now. How far do they need to raise rates? And what's marked the ECB out is a number of members of the governing council are talking about having to put more weight on actual inflation rather than forecast inflation when thinking about how far rates might have to be increased. That obviously leads, to, leads you to a possible risk that they, they over-tighten.
0: And I, I guess there's a flip side of that. I'm, I'm talking just about the, the messaging that comes with next week's decisions. We've seen particularly with the US where at you know, the, the merest hint that there could be a shift in the aggressiveness of tightening and, and markets start partying. To what extent a central bank is going to have to be careful next week in making sure the market gets the message about their policy intentions and the fact that presumably the, the battle isn't over yet? I think this is the big
1: challenge facing central banks is that there's a risk that if they send too strong a signal or even giving it a hint that they might be approaching the end of the tightening cycle, the markets move slightly ahead of where they'd like them to get to. Financial conditions loosen perhaps prematurely in the eyes of central bankers and that therefore they have to tighten further in order to get financial conditions to tighten again. So communicating their policy intentions I think is incredibly difficult. Now we've done some work looking at what's happened at the end of previous tightening cycles. I think for this reason, it becomes quite quickly apparent that central banks almost never pre-announce the fact they've ended the tightening cycle they almost never communicate at the end of the actual tightening cycle that this is the end for exactly that reason so i think that the challenge of communication is a substantial one and i think it's for those reasons that we shouldn't really be expecting the fed or any other major central bank for that matter to give us a very strong hint that they've they finished tightening
0: this idea of staying the course it feeds into a lot of the financial commentary around the central bank predicament particularly in the us you know, policymakers shouldn't be like Arthur Burns, the Fed chair in the early 70s, who's always been accused of, of easing policies too soon and reigniting inflationary problems in the U.S. And they should be more like Paul Volcker, who's seen as this this model inflation fighter who dared push the economy into recession to win battle. At the heart of all this, this fear that once again, we're going to end up with, with wage price spirals. And it feels like a very 1970s framing. And we're speaking in the UK, where every day brings news of another group of workers going on strike over pay and conditions. It does all feel a bit like the 1970s in terms of industrial stoppages. But it also seems worldwide, you know, just to take three examples, you've got Cathay Pacific workers in Hong Kong, uh, steel workers in the Korea, in the US, I think rail workers were talking about going on strike. Certainly, the New York Times is 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 on strike, and and there was even a report that that staff at the ECB are considering striking over pay. So, are these comparisons with the nineteen seventies? justified. Can you talk a bit about wage pressures and how they fit into our general view about what's happening with inflation?
1: Yes, obviously, we, we've had conversations in the past. And this is a theme that has been recurring. Are we returning to the 1970s? And I think it's easy to get seduced by that narrative. Inflation is an obvious similarity. Industrial unrest strikes is another backdrop of weak, slowing, negative growth, high inflation, stagflation. It feels very 1970s And of course, you've got an energy shock going on as well. And one of the salient characteristics of the 1970s was the two big oil shocks. So I think there's lots on the surface that that is very similar today to what happened in the 1970s. But our view is the differences are perhaps rather more important. In particular, labor markets function very differently and product markets are different too because of globalization. But labour markets in particular have been deregulated, they're much more flexible. And I think what's more, if you look across a broad range of labour market data, we're starting to see some signs that conditions are loosening too. So I suspect it's going to be some difficult months over the winter period, particularly in in Europe with kind of stoppages and strikes. But I think that as labor market conditions start to loosen, perhaps some wage pressures and will start to ease. I'm more interested actually in the comparisons with the period after the end of the Second World War. And in particular, because that entailed a huge shock to the supply side of economy. So during the war, obviously men were mobilized into the to the army. There was female workers took their place either on the land or in factories so there's a huge shift on the supply side of the labor markets and what's more at least in the case of the uk you had a huge army of workers on the land from that were prisoners of war if you look at the the uk's experience after the end of the second world war workers that worked on the land prisoners of war went back to to germany uh, and demobbed men from the army had to be kind of reintegrated into the to the labor force And of course the structure of the uk economy had changed through the war and we saw for for about two years some really substantial structural pains and and frictions in the in the uk economy Um, shortages of miners at one point shortages of truck drivers at another point difficulties getting fuel around the country as a result and then those would start to feed shortages elsewhere in the country too so you had trouble getting coal around the country that caused problems for steel mills, for example. All of that, I think, has very real echoes in, in what's happening today. And of course, you had inflation in part because of wartime price controls being relaxed. So again, differences, but similarities. Now, the important point is that by the time we got to the, the early 1950s, a lot of those issues had kind of worked their way through. A bit complicated in the case of the UK because of a devaluation at the end of the 40s. But in the case of the US, a lot of those issues have worked their way through. So the lessons from the 1940s 40s and the end of the second world war perhaps rather more encouraging and and i think the parallels are are at least as strong as they as the parallels with the 1970s
0: and i I think that informs our view doesn't it on in terms of how particularly in the us how how the inflation cycle is going to pan out over the coming months
1: yeah so we have this view our chief US economist Paul Ashworth has been arguing for a while that core inflation pressures will start to ease over the, the coming months. And one of the surprise stories of 2023 could be the pace at which they moderate. That's partly because a lot of core goods inflation is starting to come off the boil, but also because we know that some of the the factors that are pushed up core inflation in the US, particularly shelter and on the services side, medical services, those should start to ease too. So yeah, we, we, yeah, we have a view that core inflation is going to fall and will fall a bit, bit more rapidly than many anticipate next year in the US, a bit slower to fall back in the UK. But ultimately, we, we do get there in the UK and in Europe over the next couple of years. So yeah, central banks have a bit more work to do in the short term, but I think over the medium term, which I mean in the next kind of two or three years, there's more reasons to think that inflation will stay... Yeah, you know, it is kind of 2 3%, something like that, than was the case 12 or 18 months ago when central banks were talking about flexible average inflation targeting and, and perhaps going soft on inflation in order to achieve other goals.
0: That was Neil Shearing on the inflation outlook. Our US and Europe teams held an online briefing on December 6th about why core inflation in those economies are on different paths. We'll link to a recording of that on the podcast page of our website. Now, Lula's back in Brazil. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will become president for a second time in January after a stunning comeback. More than three years ago, he was in jail. His return has raised hopes that something can be done to tackle the deforestation in the Amazon, which was allowed to carry on pretty much unchecked under outgoing president Jair Bolsonaro. The Amazon's central to the climate challenge acting as a massive absorber of CO2, but it's been estimated to be losing around 10,000 acres each day from commercial interests. So how much can Lula get done or will Brazil's economic priorities prove a distraction? David Oxley, the head of our new Climate Economics service, spoke about Lula's challenge with our chief EM economist William Jackson. First you'll hear David talking about what happened on the deforestation front during the first Lula administration.
2: Yes, so I mean, under his tenure, deforestation in Brazil fell by about 70% from the early 2000s to, to 2011. I mean, on, ominously, it's crept back up again uh, under his successor, Dilma, and more recently under Bolsonaro. So it was a golden period for reductions in deforestation when he was last in office. Yes. And one of the striking things in
3: in Brazil is how deforestation plays such a big role in its emissions profile. And in some ways, it's quite a a green country the there's a lot of hydropower electricity generation doesn't generate much in terms of emissions is the industry's relatively small but it's really the deforestation has such a big impact doesn't it
2: yeah and as you say i mean hydropower is i've outsized importance in, in brazil similar in, in paraguay i think paraguay neighbor in paraguay, neighboring paraguay almost 100 percent of their power comes from hydro and brazil benefits from that as does argentina northern argentina but as you say i mean deforestation really is a It's a sort of vicious circle when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, so not only does removing trees reduce the size of the carbon sink and the ability of that forest to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, that land once it's been deforested is then typically converted into agricultural land, particularly for producing beef and livestock, is also problematic given that that's a major contributor of methane emissions. So. Yeah, as I say, it's kind of a, a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde character in some respects, Brazil, when it comes to emissions. Yeah, I think you also touched on a really interesting point in a recent report about
3: biodiversity. COP15 is on the, on the agenda talking about similar issues and deforestation. In the Amazon clearly has a, a massive risk. It's hard to see what the economic impacts are of that, though. Surely important.
2: Yes, I know that exactly. So this is related to the COP15 that's coming underway in Montreal. So look at, looking at biodiversity and maintaining species and you know, making sure we look after the planet. And as, as you say, from it's an uncomfortable truth that in economic circles, we don't value biodiversity. You know, it doesn't get counted in GDP. You know, if a host of species of animals or plants go extinct that won't actually detract from GDP. You know, they really call economics a dismal science. And in many ways that is true. But the way it is interesting in biodiversity is because it's the real flip side of helping to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions. It goes hand in hand. If if you're going to preserve biodiversity and carbon sinks, that will help you by definition to preserve the ability of this land to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so yeah, this is where it does touch on uh, the deforestation issue in Brazil. But the key thing I argued in that report was that preserving biodiversity and carbon sinks is very much a necessary condition to to tackling climate change. But on its own, it's it's not going to do a huge amount to bring things down. It's no substitute for reducing gross emissions. So that's very much where policymakers' focus should be over the coming decades.
3: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I think there's also a, you know, we. we had Lula come to power and a lot of optimism about him being able to play a big role in tackling deforestation in Brazil. But just from my own perspective, looking at this, I think there have to be question marks about whether he can have the same success that he had in the 2000s. One of the, one of the big, there's, there's clearly a lot of political willingness both in Brazil and ex- in the rest of the world for Lula to be successful here. But the the resource side of it in Brazil may be more difficult. The, from the economic side there's been a lot more attention on debt risks and big budget deficit that brazil has been running for years which means he simply may not be able to dedicate as much resources to monitoring deforestation and increasing security in the amazon to try or providing financial incentives to, to curb deforestation and fundamente-
2: so sorry, sorry, really. it's just I'm fundamentally i was I'm always intrigued as to where's the incentive to reduce deforestation i know brazil is a it's a meat loving country and you know, eat far more than, on average beast than like, per capita than other countries. I mean, it's, it's even with the greatest will in the world to reduce deforestation. I mean, yeah, how does that interplay with Brazilian demand for beef? You know, like, yeah, is that an intractable problem? I think this could be a really important point of attention.
3: Like you say, David, Brazilians consume a very large amount of beef relative to other countries. It's- part of the the food culture and it's going a bit outside our economics areas of expertise but it's unclear if that's really going to change and yeah, indeed lula when he he won the election he said now everyone's going to be able to eat picanha again picanha is a, Bra- a brazilian cut of beef that is very popular so on the one hand he's he's appealing to, to the electorate with the promise that you'll be able to eat more beef your incomes will rise you'll be able to eat more heavier in meat than than before yet at the same time he's pledging to curb deforestation which Seems like it would require beef consumption to fall. I mean, there might be technological adaptions that might be able to mitigate some of this, I suppose, but there there does seem to be an inherent tension there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say, I've I've read a lot of stuff coming out of Australia about trials of different food additives that they can give to cows and other ruminants to reduce their emissions, as it were. Intriguing, I remember reading about this Particular type of seaweed that you can give to cows apparently it reduces their methane emissions by up to eighty, ninety percent. But it's just not commercially viable at this stage. But that's interesting. Well, it's interesting. So he's he's certainly not pushing Brazil down the ve- vegan path. He's he's trying to tread the meat loving path and also while bringing deforestation down. Definitely, I mean, there are some other economic incentives, but
3: I'm not sure how big they are. One one area is that. The EU is monitoring deforestation very closely. There's actually been a free trade deal. There was decades in the making between the EU and Mercosur, the South American country group that includes, includes Brazil. It took decades to make it, it was agreed, but it hasn't been ratified because the EU is seeking a political commitment from Brazil to curb deforestation. That could, that could proceed under Lula. The issue is there's not. Now there's less appetite in, in Latin America to proceed with that deal. It's not clear that Lula himself is particularly keen on this deal that was ultimately signed by the Bolsonaro government. And very recently, the Argentine government has talked about needing to to renegotiate it. So it's not clear if there's a big economic incentive from the rest of the world yet so Brazil to, to have much success here.
2: Okay. Just so from an outsider of somebody who doesn't follow Brazil as closely as you, I mean, my perception for following the climate side of things is that Lula's been treated as a bit of a rock star since he's been re-elected. So he, like, so he descended on COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh declaring Brazil was back and, you know, he's become a bit of a darling amongst people hoping that he's going to be successful and reducing deforestation. But I'm, I'm picking up a sense that outside looking in, gives, you might be giving him quite a rosy perception, but actually if you, if you look a bit more closely at some of the domestic challenges he's facing, it's... Yeah, it is certainly more problematic looking from, from Brazil looking out.
3: Yeah, the, it's right. I think a good point to bring out that distinction. From sort of outside-in perspective, the attention has been on, a lot of attention has been on the, the climate agenda under yeah. Lula. Within Brazil, a lot more focus has remained on fiscal policy. It's been the key issue really for Brazil's economy and financial markets for years now. Initially, when Lula was elected, there, there was a small honeymoon period of a, a week or two. There were hopes in the markets that he would govern as a pragmatist. He'd given a lot of indications that way. But that, that honeymoon came to an end pretty quickly once he unveiled some of his fiscal plans. And we've seen much more of that on the past week. Essentially, they're trying to increase social spending quite significantly. The Lula government's plans pointed to spending being about 2% of GDP higher for the course of the next presidential term than had originally been planned. So that, that's worried investors for two reasons. One is simply that the deficit is going to be bigger, the debt trajectory is going to be on a higher and steeper path. The other issue is that Lula and his team in planning this are using lots of workarounds to essentially undermine Brazil's fiscal rules, and in particular, the spending cap. There was a law that was introduced in 2016 to keep growth in federal spending very low to in- assure investors there will be a return to debt sustainability over the medium term. That started to get eroded under the Bolsonaro government. They found little workarounds, but this seems a more egregious violation of the of the spending cap. So the, the the anchors for fiscal discipline have really been eroded now. So, quite a lot to worry investors in in terms of what Lula seems to be planning in terms of fiscal policy. Still, things to be worked out. It's passing through the bill passing through the Senate. We've seen it be watered down in the last few days. Actually, could be watered down further, but. It's, it's moving in an, in an ominous
2: direction. And, and does this have any implications for the central banks? You know, if loose the fiscal policy, is that part of the concerns that we've seen play out recently? To an extent, yes. The The Brazilian central bank is one that pays a lot of attention to fiscal
3: policy and, and the country risk premium that that then entails. If, the, if they're more worried about the fiscal outlook, then then interest rates are likely to be higher. And we actually had an interest rate decision on Wednesday evening where they did flag these risks. Possibly you might have expected more, more stress on, on some of the risks. They included one or two lines on, on fiscal risks. So there's something they're watching. Maybe they're waiting for clearer details of, of how these fiscal plans will actually shape up in their final version. But it, it's certainly a risk when you're thinking about policymaking. we spent a lot of time talking about inflation and interest rates across the globe over the past year. Brazil's been at the leading edge of this. Year. Inflation started rising last year much earlier than in many countries. They started hiking interest rates too. But also, inflation's fallen back a long way. It's now at 6%, down from about like 12% earlier this year. So, otherwise, the conditions would be starting to get into place for interest rate cuts. Brazil could potentially be one of the first central banks to move in that direction, but fiscal risk might just have forced
0: them to stay their hand. And that's it for this episode. Check out our website for links to all the work referenced in this podcast, including our analysis of inflation outlooks, previews of the week's bank meetings, the economics of climate change, and what to expect from the Lula presidency. That's capitaleconomic.com. Next week, we'll be having a special discussion on what to expect in 2023. But until then, goodbye.